1: Bring in
2: show music,
0: please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. FTC chair Lena Kahn taking on Amazon.
1: So this lawsuit is fundamentally about protecting free and fair competition.
0: The top antitrust regulator suing the online retailer we
1: can't live without for being too big. There are certain dimensions of competition that only online superstores can fill, and the complaint lays out what some of those key dimensions are.
0: Elon Musk says union demands could bankrupt the big three automakers. Musk man Walter Isaacson on the change to work.
3: There was a period of time where a worker at a Tesla plant was making more than you because the stock was- uh, No, 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 no,
4: no, not more than me.
0: Plus, Target closing stores due to a rise in theft, the picketer in chief, and what we learn when strikes wrap up.
4: The deal will last
2: until May of, ready for this, only 2026. Oh, God. So this could happen all over again.
0: It's Wednesday, September 27th. Squawk Pod begins right now.
2: Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please.
5: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross-Sorkin. Okay, the good news is uh, we got through yesterday. It was a bit of a rout in the markets yesterday. The Dow was actually down by 388 points. That was its worst day since March, but on a percentage basis, it was the best performer of the three major indices. The Dow Industrial is down only by about 1.1%. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ each down by about 1.5%. And if you want to look at things month to date, we are on track for the worst month of the year. If you're looking at the S and P, if you're looking at the Nasdaq, if you're looking at the Dow Transports, um, right now the Dow Industrial is off by about 3.1 percent. S and P is down by close to 5.2 percent, and then the Nasdaq is down by about 7 percent. Russell has fared. The Russell 2000 has fared much worse. It's actually down seven and a quarter percent for the ma- month to date. So we'll continue to watch what some of these things happens. Dow Transports are down by about five and a quarter percent.
4: You got to admit the the irony of. Uh 90 percent of the people we talked to finally threw in the towel and the uh, revisiting the <laughs> October lows right when this was ready to, to head back down. Never mind. But they did.
5: Yeah. It, it's I, uncanny. It's counterintuitive. It it's did, it uncanny. Okay. But
4: it's always the way it is.
2: After 148 days on strike, Hollywood writers can return to work this morning. Union leaders voting unanimously to end that strike after language, of uh, that contract language, was finalized. The deal will last until May of, ready for this, only 2026. Oh, God. So this could happen all over again. Like three a stop years away. Uh, it includes a 5% minimum pay increase now, another 4% bump in May of 2024, and a 3.5% raise in May of 2025. Now, studios won't be allowed to use AI to write or rewrite literary material. And AI-generated content can't be considered, quote, source material. Writers will also get residuals based on streaming viewership. That was a big key uh, in those negotiations. And streamers are going to have to provide the Writers Guild the total number of hours streamed for self-produced, high-budget streaming programs, like Netflix's original series, The Agreement. It also uh, 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 approved—I'm sorry, like Netflix, The Agreement, I apologize, also approved— Writers' room minimums, also renewed showrunner training programs. WGA members will have until October 9th to cast their votes on that contract. It's expected to pass. Meantime, the the next part of this whole thing is the Screen Actors Guild, Uh, and they still have to go here. They're telling CNBC that they have no confirmed date for their next negotiations with studios. So even though this is done, the question is how far along that, how long that takes, and how much of the language that was just negotiated by the writers, either gets improved upon or becomes the boilerplate for the for uh,
5: the actors. Well, I think it would get easier from here. SAG it actually should. sent out a note Except to all it. of its members saying that, "Hey, don't believe it anywhere if you hear right. that there's something going on because we don't have these confirmed dates."
0: Go Joe Biden traveled to Michigan yesterday, becoming the first sitting president to walk a picket line when he joined some of the 18,000 striking United Auto Workers. He grabbed a megaphone and told the workers to stick with it.
4: You deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits.
5: Let's get it! You get back who we
0: lost,
1: okay? Yeah. Yeah. We say you have it, it's about time to step up for us.
0: This visit was a key demonstration of Biden's pro-union support. And in a state, Michigan, shaping up to be a presidential battleground yet again in 2024.
4: The big three is showing us how it's, uh, the UAW, showing us how it's done. And the writers and the actors have been watching. Minimum, baseline, 40% increase, less work. That's what I'm doing, that's my new mantra. 40% 40 more. Less work. I, think you, got, I work. think you got that deal. In, in fairness, I think you got in, that no, deal. I already, oh no. Yeah, I know we said that yesterday. Thirty-two hour a week. Whoa, whoa, no way.
5: Well look, in, in fairness, the UAW is coming back. They they are oh, actually making less From money what? than they were ten years Everybody ago. Everybody is because, than
4: they were two years ago.
5: Well, when you look at inflation, yeah. but the UAW well, we gave up a lot. That's
4: but, but the auto workers did make a lot of concessions. Yeah. And and I then I I mean really yesterday it was I mean, it was really sort of a uh, workers unite, fists in the air, CEOs of uh, the greedy corporations. And We're I'm talking about that just- this is all the stuff that, that President Biden actually was saying, all, all those comments. But um, once again, it, it's bad optics that the CEOs have made so much money. But, yeah. but the question, if you just look at the future and look at the reality of where we are, you know, a twenty or thirty million dollar. It's like what, what Barry said yesterday. You know, the actors are bitching about the, the CEOs when the the highest paid actors, ten of them, make more than right. the CEOs that, that they're talking about. The CEO twenty million or thirty million. That's not going to sink the company, but, but benefits. It's not helpful. It's not helpful no. for. Trust. I know it's not no. helpful, but it's not the issue. The issue is whether these it negotiations put the eventually yep. put the company in a position where it can't compete two or three years from that, and we go back in again and end up picking up all these legacy costs that were negotiated but and the government shouldn't be The, gov- the government should not be
5: on the hook to have to be the ones who well bail the them out. Letting but them, the government's helping them
4: get the deal and then taxpayers are going to be the ones that, that eventually have to bail them CEOs out. The
5: made some big mistakes. Biden's supposed to be protecting the interests of shareholders
4: here, this. or of uh, taxpayers.
5: Target says that it will close nine stores in major cities across the country, citing violence, theft and organized retail crime. It's going to be closing one store in New York City's Harlem neighborhood, two locations in Seattle, three stores in San Francisco and the Oakland area and three more in Portland, Oregon. What does this all have in common? Yeah. Places where they have seen organized crime and places where you don't get prosecuted to the full extent of the law. DAs look the other way. Target said we cannot continue operating these stores because theft and organized retail crime are threatening the safety of our team and guests and contributing to unsustainable business performance. The company went on to say that before they made the decision, they invested heavily in strategies to try and prevent and stop theft. Things like adding more security team members using third-party guard services implementing theft deterrent tools across the business. Now, the CFO said back in May that they believe that theft and shrinkage is what they call it, theft and shrinkage would be $500 million worse this year than last year, half a billion dollars additionally uh, lost to theft and other issues like this. Uh, Shares of Target are down more than 25 percent year-to-date. But organized
4: crime doesn't it just has the connotation of you know you see like the guys over in brooklyn hanging like out Tony at a social club so, or something up, that's yeah. not what we're talking about we're talking about mobs that the cops are so many right. that the cops are overwhelmed and the employees are well, overwhelmed well they know
5: exactly what to walk in to get they know what the but high end items are they know organized what they in that so. there's a lot
4: of, of people yeah not organized in any, you know, there's not any capos there or, or button men or any.
5: It's not that. No, but they know exactly what they can, what they yeah, can get the just, most money for, what they can not calling it, right it really um, It's a mob. By the way, what Target says they're doing for part of this is they're hosting store walks with members of Congress, state legislators, city officials, district attorneys, law enforcement, and local community partners to try and. Educate them on what they're doing to combat retail theft and organized retail crime. The NRF, the National Retail Federation, says that this is a huge issue for stores around the country. And they've been pushing for a long time to try and change rules, try to get pushback, try to change laws, and, and make those laws enforceable to prosecute people who are doing these Doesn't
4: things. Doesn't look very organized. Looks like mayhem in a, a mob. Cheese
0: will be next. Coming up, Lena Khan versus the Everything Store, the Federal Trade Commission chair on the landmark antitrust lawsuit filed
1: against Amazon. So Amazon's tactics are closing off the dimension of price competition, which is an incredibly important form of competition and way for other firms to be competing on the merit.
0: Squawk Pod will be right back.
6: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive,
0: We're back. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Well, it happened. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states sued Amazon yesterday, alleging that the online retailing giant illegally protects a monopoly by squeezing merchants and favoring its own services. Monopoly is a bad word for the trillion-dollar company that has changed us as consumers, how we spend and what we expect to be able to buy. This lawsuit says that Amazon keeps prices artificially high, locks sellers into its platform and harms its rivals. The FTC alleges Amazon employs anti-competitive tactics to punish sellers who offer lower prices on other sites, and that results in higher overall prices for all products on the internet. The chair of the FTC is Lena Khan. Her name has become synonymous with the government's antitrust approach to our largest technology companies. She's the public face of the lawsuit. Khan was appointed by President Biden to run the FTC, but she first came to prominence as a law student in 2017. She wrote a paper arguing that the US was ill-equipped to rein in the giant monopolistic practices of, you guessed it, Amazon. Lena Khan joins Squawk Box today.
2: Con. We very much appreciate uh, you joining us uh, in your lawsuit. Uh, you say a single company, Amazon, has seized control over much of the online retail economy. It's 172 pages. But I'm going to ask you sort of a very, the very basic, I think, underlying question, which is what do you want? What, what is the underlying goal of this? You, you don't seek necessarily a breakup
1: or anything else. Thanks, Andrew. Good to see you. So this lawsuit is fundamentally about protecting free and fair competition. And the U.S. antitrust laws prohibit firms from using their monopoly power to punish or preclude or prevent competition. And that's what our lawsuit lays out that Amazon has done. Um, The consequences of that are very serious for sellers who now pay one out of every two dollars to Amazon. So this is effectively a 50 percent tax. The businesses pay to Amazon to reach shoppers. And that, in turn, inflates prices for s- consumers. And it inflates prices for consumers not just on Amazon's own site, but actually across the Internet. Um, so that's really what this case is about, is making sure that we're fighting to protect free and fair competition and ensuring a marketplace where firms are able to compete on the merits and the American public benefits from that competition.
2: But how would you solve that, which is to say, I think when you go into a case, there should be some form of a remedy.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And this lawsuit um, is really at this stage about the liability, uh, laying out how, as we allege, Amazon has violated the antitrust laws. One thing that we make clear in the lawsuit is that you really have to understand the dynamics of digital markets, and in particular, online commerce. Um, We quote Amazon execs who note that in order to really succeed in online commerce, you need to have a certain degree of scale given just the economies of scale and the network externalities, you need to have a critical mass of either shoppers or sellers in order to really benefit from the acceleration and momentum that digital markets can provide. And what Amazon's tactics have been about is once it itself achieved that scale, it's been focused on tactics that deprive rivals of the ability to gain that similar critical mass of customers. So, you know, in the way that the economies of scale in this market mean that the harms also scale. Uh, we want to make sure that the judge recognizes that the harms have aggregated and any remedy would need to take that into account to fully restore competition.
2: Chair Khan, let's just talk about the, the sort of single gating factor before you get into all of the other issues that are in uh, this, this this litigation. There is the fundamental question as to whether Amazon is a monopoly. This is a a, a market question. What is, what is the market that Amazon uh, controls or doesn't control? Uh, they would tell you uh, that they are 4% or less of retail in America and they would include brick uh, and mortar stores and every, every, every retailer around in the world. Uh, you have defined it in a very unique way. You talk about online superstores, uh, which is a, a category I have to say I, I haven't heard about before because it effectively limits it to a very, very specific uh, group. And that you'd have to have monopoly power. It's not just market power for a lawsuit like this to work, correct?
1: That's right. So... The idea of a superstore has actually been well established in the brick and mortar world. So we've had a whole set of antitrust cases that have succeeded when defining a market as the superstore market. And so this case is really applying that context in the online market sense. And you know the complaint details why it is we believe that the online superstore market is a relevant market as well as the market for online marketplace services. But does that mean
2: that the people who are at an online superstore don't compete with everybody else?
1: That's right. There are certain dimensions of competition that only online superstores can fill. And the complaint lays out what some of those key dimensions are in terms of depth and breadth of selection. Um, and so the complaint lays out why it is that we believe these are relevant antitrust markets. One other thing I will note, in antitrust, there are multiple ways to be talking about monopoly power. One is through you know defining the relevant market, talking about the percentage of that market. The other way is by showing direct evidence of monopoly power. And you can show that by showing that a firm is hiking prices, degrading quality, and not suffering the consequences. And so what this lawsuit does is it talks about the direct evidence of Amazon's monopoly power, both with regards to sellers, where it's been steadily increasing the take rate, so that it now takes one of every $2, but also with regards to quality. So we lay out in the complaint how Amazon has rolled out this pay-to-play advertising scheme that is actually showing consumers less relevant results and steering them to more expensive products. Mm-hmm. So the direct evidence of monopoly power is also something that we lay out in the complaint. So
2: here's the here's the part that I was trying to understand as I was reading it, The, the part of the lawsuit says that Amazon is forcing third-party sellers to keep their prices almost artificially low in certain circumstances against rivals at other stores. So that would be ostensibly good for customers. And yet at the same time, it appears that the same lawsuit is suggesting that Amazon is using its market power to jack up those prices and raise them. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of square that circle.
1: Yeah, it's, it's quite in the weeds, but in short, Amazon has a policy that punishes sellers or retailers that lower their price anywhere other than Amazon. At the same time, Amazon is also steadily hiking the fees that seller pays. So sellers have to inflate their price, not just on Amazon, but also across the rest of the Internet. And in practice, what that means is that if you had a platform or a retailer that was actually more efficient or that was actually more innovative, It would not actually be able to compete on price because of Amazon's anti-discounting tactics that punish any sellers if they are in any other retailer or platform while lowering prices. So Amazon's tactics are closing off the dimension of price competition, which is an incredibly important form of competition and ways for um, other firms to be competing on the merits. And so that's the dynamic that we lay out in the complaint.
4: Uh, Chair Kahn, just, just philosophically, in and, and, and a lot of the cases that, that your FTC has brought, and I know you've seen uh, the criticism, but you made a comment that, you know, mon- monopoly power can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. There's an old expression that you show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And It almost seems to some people that maybe if you have a large corporation, successful corporation, um, that you'll you can find something... Or you will look to find something by the very nature of it being successful, almost as if you're assuming that they're guilty and they need to prove that they're innocent, which they've done a few times already with with some of these cases. Is is there anything to that? Is, is, Is a big, powerful corporation, by definition, doing something wrong?
1: Absolutely not. Look, we follow the facts and follow them wherever they lead us and are fully committed to enforcing the law without fear of favor. Um, Sometimes in the past, you know, there have been instances in which enforcers have gone after just small firms and given big firms a pass. And and we don't think that's right either. Uh, So we're really focused on applying the law in an even-handed way. Uh, And if there is a law violation, that's really what we're focused on challenging.
2: I want to ask one one other element of the case where you specifically cite this idea that third-party sellers are forced to use... Uh, the prime services and delivery services of amazon as opposed to as opposed to be able to do this separately you mean using third-party services Uh, and you make the argument that this is a way for them to control their monopoly and power over these third parties and yet at the same time if you look at what amazon has said um, is that when they tried and there was a period of time where they tried uh, to allow third parties to use their own sellers and and the like or, or distribution partners rather than themselves that the delivery wasn't up to the standard of Amazon, meaning Amazon would say there's a two-day delivery. These guys wouldn't deliver in two days. They deliver in three days. They wouldn't work on the weekends and things like that. Isn't that a business decision that they should be able to make or no?
1: So the lawsuit actually notes that um, those sellers oftentimes we're actually able to meet those same standards. Um, I'll be honest, Andrew, I think this is also an area where, as more material material in the complaint becomes unredacted, I think more full light will be shed on some of those dynamics um, and we'll be able to fully explain why that was anti-competitive.
5: Chair uh, Khan, uh, Tim Wu was here last week, and he's been one of the architects with trying to come up with ways to go after uh, big tech for the Biden administration. Obviously, he's not in the administration anymore. He said one of the frustrating parts of the Obama administration was that they would not bring a case unless they were absolutely 100 percent sure that they would win. But he worries that the the new theory that, that you've kind of employed means that you're not going to win every case. You might lose a lot of cases. And he worries that eventually there is a price to pay for that. What what do you think about that theory, about how many cases you have to win if it's a problem, if you don't win a case that you've brought?
1: Look, we're focused on bringing cases that we believe we can win. Uh, We only bring cases when we believe there's a law violation. And if we believe there's a law violation, we're going to fight. Of course, things don't always go our way. And and when we suffer setbacks, we look at the decisions closely and figure out, you know, steps forward. Um, But, we think this is an enormously strong lawsuit uh, on the merits and are looking forward to explaining to a judge how it is that Amazon has violated the U.S. antitrust laws.
2: Chair Khan, before we go, just in terms of uh, looking at a calendar and the permutations with which this could take, how long do you imagine this, this case takes?
1: Well, look, Andrew, it's no secret that antitrust uh, litigation can take some time and it can be, you know, a few years before a matter goes to trial. Uh, we think that there is enormous urgency here in terms of the harms that the American public is facing, uh, paying higher prices, getting lower quality, uh, competitors being locked out of the market unfairly. And so we're going to be moving with as much urgency as we can.
2: Chair Khan, we appreciate you joining us. We hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Next on Squawk
0: Pod, it had to happen sooner or later. Tesla's Elon Musk weighing in on the auto worker strike and what worker demands will mean for the legacy car companies. The man who wrote the best-selling Musk biography, Walter Isaacson joins us.
3: Does automation create more jobs in the aggregate or does it destroy jobs? And what we know is it will decimate assembly line worker job.
6: Hi, I'm Ben.
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod.
2: Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Center in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Got a lot going on today. President Biden uh, rallied the UAW workers in Michigan. This happened on Tuesday as the strike moves into its 13th day today. And now Tesla CEO Elon Musk weighing in uh, on what's taking place in Detroit, criticizing workers' demands as a, quote, Sure way to drive GM, Ford, and Chrysler bankrupt in the fast lane. For a closer look at that fast lane, let's bring in Walter Isaacson. He's always mm-hmm. in the fast lane. Nice to see you, sir. Good to see you again. Uh, author, of course, of the new book, walter uh, well Elon Musk. That's Someday. the name of the book. He is Someday, Walter, Isaac. walter Isaacson. Um, we should also say he's an advisory partner at Weinberg, professor at Tulane University and CNBC contributor. And I believe the book is number one on the New York Times bestseller list.
3: Mm-hmm. Not because of me, but because of the interest in <laughs> Musk.
2: Congratulations. Thank you. So, let's let's talk about this. Do you do you believe or I guess what do you believe A is the right answer for the UAW and the auto automaker, the automakers and do you think Elon's right?
3: I think this is not just about the wages right now. It's about the fast move we're doing to electrification, EVs, and that changes everything. If you're building an EV, It's at least 30% and will soon be 50% less time on the assembly line, less work to be done. Likewise, the batteries aren't unionized. So as you make this transition to electric vehicles, it's very disruptive. For Musk, he's trying to bring out a $25,000 global car, compete with BYD. He's going to do it both in northern Mexico, but in Austin, this new line. And I think if the legacy automakers uh, don't figure out how to make this transition, that's what the strike's about, is figuring that out.
2: So when you see President Biden standing Mm -hmm. with the UAW workers, do you say that's right, that's wrong, given where we are? I mean, I think there's there's two issues here. We're at a Mm -hmm. time where he's pushing EVs, which Mm -hmm. makes this all that more difficult. At the same time that he's saying we want to be a country where everything is manufactured here. BYD, what do they pay, $7 an hour?
3: Right right yeah and the UAW is now what sixty-five dollars an hour so 110,000 a year which would go way up on the strike and this is a complex thing that you all debate all the time here but if you can do seven dollars an hour in China and sixty five seventy dollars right here that's going to be a problem likewise automation is going to be a problem likewise electrification is being problem. so in some ways it's a bit like you know king canute railing against the tides you got to figure out where the tides are going to hit
2: and then how concerned do you think and maybe this is true of tesla or rivian or some of the other automakers there is a knock-on effect which is to say that even though those are are companies that don't have unions that if in fact these unions capture much higher prices it does Press the price higher everywhere else.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, A Tesla worker may make forty-five dollars an hour, but they get stock options, and that's confusing if the stock's at you know a hundred, then four hundred, then two fifty. And there was a
2: period of time where clearly Tesla workers, even though they weren't unionized, were getting paid much more, frankly, than the unionized workers were at GM. (laughs) When people debate, there's a period of time where the stock is. Was, was at Thank a different place where it is today.
3: Yeah, I think there was a period of time where a worker at a Tesla plant was making more than you because the stock was... Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, well, more but, than just. Yeah, more than but, me. Uh, but, you know, that's a complicated thing. Do you want stock options? And Musk got in trouble at one point when they're trying to unionize a plant and Cal- the Fremont plant. He said, but you might lose your stock options, and that was considered an uh, unfair labor practice. I think that... Your initial question is yes, it's going to put pressure on Tesla, Rivian, and everybody else. If there's a significant rate, wage increase uh, for the UAW workers, then there's going to have to be that for the Tesla workers, even if they're could getting they, stocked up.
5: Could they options. ever unionize those plants too? I mean, that's well, there they was they a big put, drive to U- No,
3: no, I don't think any electric vehicle maker plants are unionized. I know no Tesla plants are. There was a big push to do it in California, and it failed on this vote. But there will be another push. I am absolutely sure that the UAW at some point will be trying to uh unionize electors. They have to or they lose the they lose the whole but Basically, batteries, by the way, are not included generally in the UAW that, that, contract. that's, so that's a big sticking point And right there's now, no Ford engine is, to build uh, in an electric vehicle.
5: Ford infuriated the UAW yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, when they said that that, that new plant with China, they were just going to not build it, the battery, the plant there, because of these very issues. They were yeah. on the right. There are people. It's a it's a project with China, so the China hawks are mad about it. The union is mad about it if it's not going to be unionized.
3: And by the way, the automakers are getting left behind. Like 90% of these new vehicle EVs are Tesla. It's, Tesla sold more than a million, I think, in the first six or seven months of this year. Uh, so it's leaving the older automakers behind. And with Ford once again saying we're not sure we're in this business, we're not sure we're building batteries, this is a larger mess. That surrounds the UAW. But it could, right?
4: the mess could, could get even messier. And, and I don't, I understand there's an election coming up and you'd like to work in class and Trump was going to go there anyway. Mm-hmm. Probably I understand that. And I understand student loan forgiveness at all. You know, there's things that you do. But, but one thing that I've always complained about with, with public unions when a democratic governor says, we're going to get you a great contract. Mm-hmm. The governor is there to protect the taxpayer's interests and not to, uh, to let the state get overwhelmed by pension costs, and not not to promise the moon to the public employees that mm-hmm. uh, that, that he's partying with, and then they they usually contribute the unions to getting the same guy or gal reelected again. <laughs> this is similar to me. If, wow. if, if wait a if if Biden is there saying or President Biden is there saying, I'm I you need to get this deal. You need forty dollars. If he bankrupts the
3: big three taxpayers are once again going to be bailing them out well this was Musk's point which is you'll bankrupt the big three now, with the help of uh, but, the of the guy who's
4: supposed to be protecting the the
3: taxpayers of, of yeah it. i'm not uh, i know go you go never toe do to but, toe well, with well. you in arguing this but it is true that working uh, that uh, union workers and the workers are not keeping pace with the profits well, we, being made. I, I, understand, I understand that. But that should, should the president that should be there solved.
4: arguing on the side of, of the workers when he's representing everybody? He's representing. You know, corporate interests hey, is representing a
3: field of expertise. Oh, you but yes.
4: always punt when he, when you well, when you could say something that's, that's yeah, this right in front of your Biden face. is
3: fighting for the people on the assembly line whose wages haven't caught up. Who could but end, end up I losing think, their job
4: because right. they bankrupt the company? And there are knock-on
3: the effects, and that's what must said. If you bankrupt the big three, as it happened job. to two out of the big three uh, in the past, then BYD will come in with its cars. Tesla will be making a $25,000 I just don't think we can look away and,
4: and not confront the real issues, Walter, because we could stop it from happening if, if we, you know, we could actually do some good. So, yeah. Well,
2: but God. so what do you make more largely, though, of right now, just the power that it appears that workers have across the country? You're seeing it yep. in Hollywood. We saw it with UPS. We're seeing it now with the UAW. What, what do you make of that? As somebody who has been a student mm-hmm. of history... What, what is this? Is this an okay, aberration? Is this, at- is this uh, Or was, was the last 30 years or 40 years an aberration in terms of unions, u- union pressure? The
3: past 30 years has seen a decimation of unions, right. also a decimation of uh, the median wages of working-class people, especially compared to the very high income. We've had a growing wealth gap, and that's been for reasons that you've written about right. and you're going to write about, which is uh the way our economy worked in an era of globalization and free trade right. and whatever at this point you're seeing a resurgence in the power of unions and you're seeing a resurgence in wage growth and that's probably a good corrective to the what's happened in the past 30 years
2: so you would support then the workers
3: yeah i do think though that joe is right if you bankrupt the big three automakers if you send uh if and this is the most complicated thing we face in the world today does automation create more jobs in the aggregate or does it destroy jobs? And what we know is it will decimate assembly line worker jobs, even if it might lead to a more productive economy.
5: Then add AI on top of that. What's that? Add AI on top of the automation. Yeah, well,
3: automation and the fact that Tesla is building Optimus the robot that just this week showed it can walk across the factory floor, find a valve, find a wire, pick it up with its hands, and know where to bring it. So when you have robotics that way, it's difficult to see how the tides of uh, rising uh, assembly line worker wages are gonna clash with that.
2: Are you of the view that, or let me ask it this way, actually, what does Elon Musk think about this issue about employment long-term as a function of AI and robotics and everything else? I mean, we've talked about UBI and Sam Altman has, Particular views about all this.
3: Where, One where is the Elon Musk day I was land? standing in the Tesla factories when Optimus the robot was being unveiled, walking across the stage. And this is a robot, as you know, that's supposed to be able to work on the right. factory floor, have real-world uh, artificial, uh, artificial intelligence. And he came out and he said, "Look." This is going to revolutionize things. Work is not going to be a necessity. And yes, he was in favor of UBI. He said, we're going to have to have universal basic income. Uh, As a historian, I note that every time there's an advance in technology, people think it will destroy jobs. It actually creates a more productive economy and more jobs. So I'm not sure I agree that it destroys jobs, but I know he's in favor of creating uh, artificial intelligence, robots, automation, and having universal basic income.
2: Okay, Walter Isaacson. It's always great to see you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. It's everywhere. Hey, thanks.
0: And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
2: We are clear. Thanks, guys.
6: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive...